In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. The true crime reporter never settles for standing outside the yellow crime scene tape. You knock on doors, dig through records, and cultivate sources to get to the bottom of the story. I'm Robert Riggs, the host and creator of the True Crime Reporter podcast, back with another story from three decades of investigative reporting. In this episode, I pulled out my reporter's notebooks, my law enforcement sources opened up their confidential case files, we sat down together to talk. And you can listen in to our journey into darkness. But before you do, be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience and not for the faint of heart. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic details of violent crimes. The U.S. Marshal Service Task Force put Kenneth McDuff behind bars after a two-month ban hunt. Prosecutors charged McDuff with the capital murder of Colleen Reed, who he kidnapped from an Austin car wash, and Melissa Northrup, who he kidnapped from a Waco convenience store. Northrup's body, with its wrists and ankles bound with her own shoelaces, was found by a fisherman in a flooded gravel pit three weeks after she disappeared. Her mother blamed the parole board, saying it had released the devil himself. Worse yet, my investigation uncovered that they knew it. McDuff's confidential prison files held their dirty little secrets. So why? Why did the Texas parole and prison systems turn a convicted triple killer loose? Did money grease McDuff's release from prison? The daughter that McDuff called his little gangster says yes. Triple killer Kenneth McDuff allegedly paid a $25,000 bribe to get out of prison, according to his daughter, Teresa Allen. In a June 1992 interview, Allen told me that McDuff was her biological father from a rape. Allen said McDuff raped her mother and left her for dead when they were in high school back in Rosebud. The attack occurred two years before McDuff committed the broomstick murders in 1966. You may recall from earlier episodes that McDuff's accomplice in the murder of the three teenagers testified that McDuff proudly claimed to have raped and killed before committing the broomstick murders. Allen told me that out of a morbid curiosity, she visited McDuff in prison for two years up until his release. McDuff called the attractive blonde his little gangster. He told fellow inmates that he wanted to pimp her out as a Las Vegas escort once he got out of prison. Shortly before McDuff's release on parole in October of 1989, Allen says the family discussed paying a $25,000 bribe. 
Allen did not know who paid the bribe, but thought for sure that that was the only way a triple killer with McDuff's record could have gotten out on parole. He was truly a uh, uh, sexually sadistic, psychopathic killer. I mean, that's he had it all. That's John Moriarty, the tough undercover Irish cop you heard from in earlier episodes. Moriarty was the prison investigator who helped the marshals hunt down McDuff. After McDuff's capture, Moriarty investigated his parole and parole board chairman James Granberry for U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston and a federal grand jury in Waco. In earlier episodes, I reveal that Granberry cast the key vote that freed McDuff, and you will hear much more about that later in this episode. Three decades have passed since my investigative reports and Moriarty's federal investigation. We sat down together to compare notes. Well, first off, he's the only person in Texas history that has ever been on death row twice. And, um, and you know, back in the 60s, uh, he, he was uh, convicted of that murder of uh, those uh, three uh, teenagers. And uh, and it, it didn't get a whole lot of... of uh, press compared to, uh, due to the fact that at the same time you had the Texas Tower shooting. and um, But, so he he got death and then um, he uh, um, he got released um, uh, after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the death penalty in, in the early 70s and Texas didn't have a, a life without parole at the time, which made him eligible for parole. And uh, due to his eligibility for parole, as well as some some corruption issues involving his attorney and and uh, who uh, was friends with the parole board chairman, um, he ended up be- getting released and uh, began started killing almost immediately as soon as he got out. Serial killer Kenneth McDuff passed through the revolving door of a corrupt parole and prison system in 1989. 56,000 ex-cons, many of them violent career criminals, walked out the door along with McDuff on parole. Some, like McDuff, were former death row inmates who had dodged the electric chair. Most had only served a fraction of their prison sentence. The Texas Parole Board, appointed by Governor Bill Clements, an oil man, secretly opened the floodgates to relieve prison overcrowding. It spared the governor from the political embarrassment of a federal shutdown and takeover. It also provided the perfect cover for corruption. Who's going to notice a few human sharks pouring out of prison in a tidal wave of violent ex-cons? Author Gary Laverne gives the best illustration of McDuff's journey through this corrupt revolving door system. Listen to this passage from his book, Bad Boy of Rosebud, The Murderous Life of Kenneth Allen McDuff. Okay, Robert, this took me three days to write because I wanted to make sure I got it absolutely right. And it's in the prologue of my book, and it goes... It turns out that from 1965 to 1992, McDuff had been arrested for burglary, sent to prison, paroled, arrested for three brutal murders while on parole, sent back to prison and placed on death row, taken off death row, 
convicted of a felony while in prison, paroled, arrested for making terroristic threats while on parole, sent back to prison, paroled again, arrested for driving while intoxicated while on parole, put in jail, released from jail, placed on prohibition, arrested for public intoxication while on parole and probation, arrested for murder while on parole and probation again, and finally put back on death row. One sentence took me three days to write it because I wanted to make sure everything was absolutely right. And a reasonable person would say that can't be. That's why it took me three days to write it. I, as a journalist, wanted to know why. How did that happen? It happened behind the doors of confidential inmate files. The parole board and prison system hid their dirty little secrets from the public under a legal cloak of confidentiality. State law exempted inmates' records from public release under the Texas Open Records Act. So, parole board members, their staff, and the prison system could do and say whatever they pleased with no fear of getting caught. They got away with it for years, until I got my hands on Kenneth McDuff's confidential files. Parole Board Chairman James Granbury, who cast the key vote to parole McDuff, had claimed the triple killer was a model inmate. Listen to this prison disciplinary report that I found in McDuff's confidential file. It states, He chooses not to participate in any educational, vocational, or character developmental programs due to lack of interest. He received a major misconduct report on May 20, 1987, for destruction of state property. He has displayed an unsatisfactory institutional adjustment. McDuff's file cataloged allegations of prison drug smuggling and violent threats. John Moriarty and I were equally appalled by McDuff's parole when we read those files 30 years ago. And for the record, no one interviewed in this podcast was my source for McDuff's files and the files of other violent ex-cons. When you saw the circumstances of his release, that he'd been on death death row was out, were you shocked? I was, and I ended up uh, reviewing both the... uh, all the files, the parole files, the uh, uh, institutional files on them. And uh, it was just incredible that, that this guy was walking among us. And the parole board chairman, in justifying to the public his release, would say he was a model prisoner. Yeah, well, uh, he had disciplinary issues, but and they, they weren't major disciplinary issues. But what happens is is that these guys know how to they adjust to the system. They're predators. They, they, you know, they, they, uh, whatever benefits them, they'll, they'll do. My investigation into McDuff's parole started by getting the parole division's staff directory. I cross-referenced names to home phone numbers listed in the telephone directory. Google search did not exist back in those days. It was like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. Night after night. I called parole officials and staff at their homes or knocked on their doors. People usually feel a little more comfortable talking around the kitchen table. But most of the time, the parole division staff and board members cursed me, 
hung up the phone, or slammed the door in my face. A few staff members nervously looked around to see if anyone was watching us talk at the front door. They trembled with fear. They were afraid of getting fired just because they opened the door for me. It was the telltale sign of a corrupt government institution, an authoritarian regime like you expect to find in Russia or Iran or China today. One and only one parole board member agreed to talk to me on the record. Parole board member Henry Keene of Dallas. Keene had cast the lone vote against McDuff's release. He was a fifth-generation Texan, Navy veteran of the Korean War, a retired manager at Texas Instruments, and an active member of the Republican Party. Keene, who is now deceased, told me in an on-camera prison interview back in May of 1992 that McDuff did not deserve to be released on parole after murdering the three teenagers in 1966. Twenty years, Keene said, was not very much punishment for such a grotesque offense. Off-camera, in a series of long telephone conversations, Keene cautiously told me he suspected wrongdoing. Moriarty's investigation also ran into the same wall of silence. Henry Keene was the, a Dallas Parole Board member who was the lone member who voted against McDuff, was very suspicious of how he got parole and all, uh, had a reputation for integrity, was helpful to me, but frankly was scared to death and, uh, you know, was helpful. But he was scared of Granberry and scared of what might happen. There was a female parole board member who had been threatened by inmates on Granberry's behalf. What was this power that Granberry had? Oh, it was incredible power. I mean, um, uh, people's freedom is one of the, one of the uh, things in life that you know that we all can't live without. That if you know if somebody takes away your freedom and locks you up and. You know, you look at the worst case scenarios in history when the Nazis interned everybody. and But when you hold the, that key to the door, that's a huge power, huge power. Um, they, I mean, they had fear of retribution. Did he have that kind of power? That He had that kind of power. So uh, I, in part of my reporting, I found out that uh, in Lubbock, he actually had inmates working for him, burglarizing places, fencing stuff. All, all these guys he'd gotten out on early parole. And along the way, uh, a narcotics detective showed me a picture of the parole board chairman in a, uh, a nightclub where all the drug dealers hung out. And he's sitting with them and prostitutes flashing their gang sign. What do you think when you saw that picture? Oh. Obviously, um, uh, he, he was a player in that community. I mean, of the convicts, you know, they, they, they treated him like God because he did. He had that kind of power. And, um, and he, he used that power. He wielded that power. We, we, we found that during the investigation. Um, any, any way that he could to benefit whoever it was that he wanted it to benefit. And um, But I did see that photograph also. Kenneth McDuff's confidential files revealed that he was no stranger to bribery. I found a report about his attempt to bribe a parole commissioner in 1981. McDuff told the official, 
if you can help me make this parole and get me out of TDC, I can guarantee that you will find $10,000 in the glove compartment of your car. I can guarantee you the $10,000 because my dad promised me I could have that much just for that purpose. He's pretty well off. A Brazoria County jury convicted McDuff of attempted bribery. Seven years after the bribery conviction, and after having been denied parole 14 times, the board released McDuff on parole on October 11, 1989. Two days later, investigators believe that McDuff murdered Sarafia Parker, a young African-American woman in Waco. Bradbury intervened in McDuff's parole one month after Governor Bill Clements appointed him to the parole board in May of 1989. Granberry claimed to me that he read McDuff's case file more thoroughly than any case he had ever looked at. He said he discovered an old high school buddy was McDuff's attorney, and they talked about the case for two hours. Afterwards, Granberry formally abstained from voting on McDuff's parole, citing his long-standing personal relationship with the attorney representing McDuff's parole process. So another parole board member replaced Granberry on McDuff's parole panel. The three-member panel approved McDuff's parole two to one. But the Brazoria County District Attorney who prosecuted McDuff for bribery protested and the Tarrant County District Attorney, who prosecuted McDuff for the broomstick murders, protested. Their protest forced another vote. Two weeks after abstaining from voting, Granberry voted to release McDuff. He broke a one-to-one tie. McDuff was released six months later in October of 1989. The triple killer started killing again. I confronted Granberry about his flip-flop on McDuff's vote in June of 1992. Now, if, if you would recuse yourself once, why not again, especially when you were casting the critical vote uh, for withdrawal? You could withdraw the parole. You stood between Kenneth McDuff and Freedom. No, 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 let's, let's get this. Uh, I didn't approve his parole. I merely continued his parole planning, and there's a big difference. But you could have stopped I'm it. honored. You could uh, so could uh, uh, everybody uh, else had already voted. Their vote was set. King. Well, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I guess I could if I voted the other way. We could have stopped it. But I don't have a crystal ball, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I, in my opinion, he was. Uh, he, he'd make a. Uh, he'd be a, a useful citizen. Arnell McNamara thought Kenneth McDuff was anything but a useful citizen. He was a natural-born, sadistic killer. He was so brutal and so heartless and soulless uh, that the more we got into the investigation and we knew what he had done to those, those young kids in 1966, his brutality was just over the top. He thoroughly enjoyed inflicting pain and misery and terror on his victims. McDuff was a ticking time bomb, and the system knew it. Shortly after McDuff's release from prison, 
His parole officer wrote in a confidential memo that McDuff gets very upset upon being referred to as a sex offender. Seems that he could be very dangerous or explosive if the wrong button is pushed. McDuff exploded back in Rosebud where he was the feared town bully. Larry Pamplin was the sheriff then. So he comes back, I believe, to your county, violates parole. You remember him threatening the uh, young man? Tell, tell me that story. Uh, well, that, that took place where he had violated and called a young man negative derogatory names, and his parole was revoked, but he didn't stay any time. You know, and this was an African American man, and absolutely, McDuff pulled used racial slurs, but also pulled a knife on him. That's my understanding. It's exactly right. McDuff was not one to confront a full-grown, healthy individual male. In my opinion, he was he was just a coward when it came to actually fighting a real man and he for some reason he zeroed in on kids and most of the females were small structured females and he just derived his satisfaction out of inflicting horrible torture upon them police arrested mcduff for pulling a knife on the four african-american teenagers the offense violated the terms of mcduff's parole he was sent back to prison but not for long, Granberry intervened again. Macduff's attorney, Granberry's old high school buddy, was working on a movie deal called Justice for Macduff. It would feature the efforts of Macduff's attorney to prove Macduff was wrongly convicted of the broomstick murders. In a prison interview with author Gary Laverne, Macduff says his attorney told him that he was going to make millions. Uh, I'm expecting to uh, do a story, uh, uh, do a book on Memphis story and a movie. Uh-huh. And my attorney is telling me, hey, you're going to have a few million dollars here pretty shortly. The money-making book and movie deal stalled when McDuff went back to prison. McDuff's attorney asked Granberry, again his old high school buddy, to reinstate McDuff's parole. I obtained the attorney's confidential letter to Granberry. It states, Dear Jim, the revocation resulted from an incident at a rock concert which was nothing more than bad manners on the part of both McDuff and the long-haired hippie complainant. Neither the prison system, the parole system, McDuff or the complainant is benefited by sending McDuff back to the prison population. Granberry claimed he never saw the letter. Nevertheless, one month later, the parole division reinstated McDuff's parole and McDuff resumed his killing spree. Bill Johnston, the U.S. attorney in Waco back then, investigated Granberry's role in letting McDuff out of prison. Well, the whole the whole thing was so uh, appalling, but so, almost unbelievable that the system would have degraded to this, that a guy, like you said, is esteemed mayor, Republican gubernatorial candidate, um, chairman of the Texas Parole Board, which is a a big deal that's uh, like the largest prison system anywhere that it would have become this this uh, corrupt little game um, and that these horrible people would have been released it was almost unbelievable but 
we had seen the dirty side of it and with Moriarty we'd seen the behind the curtain of it and it it was totally believable to us and worthy but we checked ourselves a lot early on because it can't be nobody would do that why would someone do that and and let a serial killer out no way and but it was all true it really happened next on true crime reporter a hate crime killer received parole and the parole board chairman received two new cars and so in order to keep the doors rolling and and give him more control he would make up uh, have friendly panels that he would make sure he wanted somebody out or possibly that he was sh- uh, shaking down uh, some of these family members that uh, he, he'd push him out the door. We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager, Grace Woodward, producer, Siler Burr, original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King, Sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker. Graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of truecrimereporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.